Well, today, as we continue our series from the book of Judges, I'm excited to get to talk about the story of Deborah. Deborah is one of the most unique judges, perhaps the most unique judge in the whole book. Her story really stands out in a lot of ways. Uh, For one thing, it's the only story that's told twice in the book of Judges. There's first uh, an ordinary just prose narrative, and then second, it's retold in song form. Uh, This is the only story, the only Judges story to end with a big musical number. And Judges the musical, in addition to being a a song, it's also a second account that includes a few different details not included in the the first telling and leaves out some other details, so it's complex that way. Uh, Deborah is also the only judge who is also a prophet. Deborah is the only judge who doesn't clearly engage in direct physical combat with the enemy nations. Instead, it's her role as kind of a civil leader that's emphasized uh, more strongly than other judges. We see a picture of her sitting under the palm of Deborah while people come to her for just judgment. And then she acts sort of as a commander-in-chief, appointing a general to lead the army. As far as I can tell, Uh, It's also the only story that overlaps with another judge. Uh, Shamgar and Deborah's stories both seem to happen in the time after Ehud, and and chapter 5, verse 6, I think, uh, links the event days of Shamgar. Um, Let's see, there's something else about Deborah that's unique among the judges. What is it? Uh, Oh, yeah, she's arguably the godliest uh, of the judges. Her story doesn't have any moral failing on her part, like you see for Gideon or Jephthah or Samson, but there's something else that sticks out to us about Deborah. Uh, What is it? Um, Oh yeah, Uh, she's a woman. Uh, And the text rubs that fact in a little bit. The ESV reads Deborah a prophetess and kind of omits a, a redundancy in the Hebrew, which would more word for word read Deborah a woman, a prophetess. And she's not the only woman to have an important role in the story. We'll also meet Jael, who, uh, well, well, we'll find out what she does later. But it's clear that the, the idea of women is a key theme in the text. And it's really tempting to ignore or downplay that because talking about women is dangerous. Uh, women are apparently pretty controversial. And depending on what I say, I, I might get slapped with the F word or the S word. Uh, f- that's feminist or sexist. By the way, oh, the next page of my notes is upside down. So I could avoid that by just trying to draw out uh, some generic spiritual principles uh, for all of us. That seems safer, but I'm not sure it's really safe to preach God's word and ignore this really big salient feature of the text. So uh, I'm just going to preach this text as I understand it, and you can can use whatever words you want to describe me. But uh, the fact is God chose a woman at that period in history to, to lead his people, He chose a woman to slay their enemy, and he inspired the author of Judges to emphasize the fact that they're women. And he did all this within the man's world of the ancient Near East, and we wonder why. Um, So we'll look at some some, uh, answers to that question of why, but first we should look at the story in case you're not familiar. So if you have your Bible, uh, you could open that to the book of Judges. We'll just start in chapter 4. In verse 1, Judges 4, starting in verse 1, and I'll interrupt my reading here to to point out some things as we go. Judges 4, verse 1, And the people of Israel again 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was the gut-stabbing judge uh, that we heard about last week in another gory story. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now this is catastrophic because there was a Jabin king of Hazor who was killed uh, during the conquest and the Israelites burned the city of Hazor, but now apparently a descendant with the same name has rebuilt the city and has gained the upper hand, and this is all as punishment for Israel's sin. The commander of his army, moving on, was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So Israel is still in the Bronze Age at this point. So iron is superior technology, superior military technology, and 900 chariots of iron is pretty much invincible. Uh, there's no hope of defeating an army like that, and this is why they're crying out to the Lord, because only he could do it. So moving on in verse 4, we meet Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, who was judging Israel at that time. The name Deborah, by the way, means bee or wasp. And wife of uh, Lapidoth could also be translated wife or woman of torches. Lapidoth is kind of a funny name. A wife of torches would, would sort of have the uh, poetic flourish on the idea of a fiery woman. Uh, so she's judging Israel, meaning not only did she hear cases like, uh, you know, a Judge Judy type figure, but also acting as a civil leader of the nation is what's involved in judging. But she did hear cases. Uh, we read in verse 5, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman." At this point, we wonder what's going on. Why did Barak, I'm going to call him Barak, I guess you could also call him Barak. Um, if I were from the Deep South, maybe I'd say Barak. Uh, I'm from Northern Ohio, and we might around there say Barak or something like that. But I'm just going to call him Barak. Um, but why did he insist on taking Deborah with him? And why did God say he'd give the enemy over to a woman instead? It's easy to see Barak as a coward. Uh, here's a man who won't go to war without a woman by his side. Maybe he should have just told her to go home. But as we'll see, the idea of Barak as a coward I don't think fits with the rest of the story and what we see Barak doing. Barak could also be trying to manipulate God. Maybe he wants the prophet with him almost as a, a good luck charm or to try to force God to, to help. Maybe he doesn't trust God. 
would be similar to the episode in 1 Samuel where they try to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle, a way to try to manipulate God. It didn't end well, kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, but without the face melting. Uh, It's not exactly like Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it still doesn't end well for the people that try to use the Ark uh, to manipulate God for their own purposes. On the other hand, it's possible Barak had good motives. Uh, His reply reminds me a little bit of Moses. In Exodus 33, 15, Moses told God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. It's possible God wants the prophet with him because she's sort of a sign of God's presence and because she speaks God's word and he knows he still needs guidance. Uh, That seems to be the earliest view that I can find. Uh, It's found sort of in an unusual way in the Septuagint. Uh, Now, the Septuagint The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was completed about 200 years or so uh, before the birth of Christ. And in Judges 4, the Septuagint puts some extra words in Barak's mouth. After he says, I'm not going to go if you're not going to go with me, he gives a reason. For I know not the day on which the Lord prospers his messenger with me. I know not the day. Uh, That seems to be sort of a study Bible note, maybe, ancient study Bible note that got mixed in with the text. It also seems to reflect um, what Deborah actually contributes when she goes along with Barak. She tells him, uh, when it's time to fight, up, for this is the day on which the Lord gives Sisera into your hand. Wait, if Barak's motives are good, why does God take the glory away from him and give it to a woman? Well, Matthew Henry in his whole Bible commentary, which was completed in around 1710, uh, suggests that it's not a punishment, but more of a challenge. The challenge is, do you value God's guidance and God's word enough to lean on it, even if it means someone else gets the glory? Or will you forget about seeking God's word in order to pursue your own glory? So it It's not so simple to figure out what's going on with Barak. I could tell you what I think today, but I might change my mind tomorrow. I'm just going to leave that question floating in the air for now and move on with the story. So whatever the reasons, Deborah prophesies that a woman will get the honor of slaying Sisera. At this point, you might think that the woman is Deborah, since she's a leader going along with uh, Barak. Well, let's just keep going. Uh, Verse 9. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. And take note of the fact that the men went up at his heels. He's leading from the front. We'll come back to that. Verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And he had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanim, which is near Kadesh. This seems like a random detail, but it'll be important in a minute. Now we come to the battle. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. 
And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. Note here that Barak heads down the mountain with his 10,000 men following him. They go after him. Another crucial picture. Barak is going first, and the men are following him. Barak, throughout leading his people, consistently leads from the front lines, the very front of the army. The only person out in front of Barak is the Lord, is God. And it simply says in chapter 4 that the Lord routed Sisera's army before Barak, and we wonder how he did that. Uh, chapter 5 possibly gives us some more detail. In chapter 5, verse 4, in the musical edition, uh, we read, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Then down in verse 21, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. So the Kishon is not a river the way we think of it. It's what's called a wadi, which is kind of a dry riverbed that floods with water during the rainy seasons, and it can flood very quickly. So it's likely, based on chapter 5, that God sent a rainstorm and a flash flooding that would have rendered the chariots useless on the, the soft, muddy ground, these heavier iron chariots. And so Sisera, seeing that the battle is lost, runs away, and there's kind of an ironic maybe sarcastic contrast between Barak and Sisera. So it says Barak went down the mountain into battle, and then Sisera, a few verses later, went down from his chariot and ran away. It's the same Hebrew word and sentence structure for went down. It's actually yachad. It's, it's the, it's the uh, Hebrew root that my name, Jared, is, is, is based on. So I guess that means I'm a gift that came down from above or something. Uh, you can verify that with my wife. She'll tell you what she thinks. Uh, but anyway, there's that contrast. Going down from the mountain to battle, going down from the chariot away from the battle. Barak had men following at his heels or feet. Sisera fled from his men on foot. The word for feet and heels is the same in Hebrew. Barak pursued the chariots. Sisera abandoned the chariots. So Barak is consistently leading his men from the front, taking the riskiest position, while Sisera is able to escape and leave his men to perish, down to the last man, sacrificing all of them to try to save himself. The contrast emphasizes, emphasizes, emphasizes Barak's bravery in battle and Sisera's cowardice. Barak comes off looking swift as a coursing river, with all the force of a great typhoon and all the, the strength of a raging fire, even if earlier in the story his motives are mysterious as the dark side of the moon. The text, however, does not make a man out of Sisera. We read in 17. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Sisera fled away on foot from the tent of Jael, uh, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. She turned aside to her tent, she covered him with a rug, and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. 
But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. In case you were wondering, it says, so he died. And behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera. Jael went out to meet him and said, come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So Kenites, as we read, relatives of Moses' father-in-law, and they're an example of a foreign non-Israelite nation that's allowed to peacefully coexist with the Israelites, but this one individual, Heber, went his own way and became an ally of the enemy, Sisera. And so Jael, you read, intercepts Sisera and invites him in. And there's some irony here in verse 20 where he asks, he tells her to stand guard if anyone asks, is anyone here, say no. A more kind of word-for-word translation might be, if anyone asks, is there a man here, say no. So maybe there's some more sarcastic mockery of, of Sisera's cowardice. And then Jael is almost maternal here as she gives him milk and, and tucks him in for his nap. Uh, but then she kills him in his sleep in a pretty gruesome way. And I'd like to make some clever pun here to really drive the point home. Uh, but for some reason, there's nothing entering my mind that really hits the nail on the head, so I won't hammer on it. I know my dad jokes just give you all a pounding headache anyway. Um, but we don't know why Jael did this. Uh, she defied her husband's alliance and assassinated her husband's ally. And maybe the alliance was somehow holding her back, and she really just wanted to get ahead. Uh, stake out her place in the world. I, I really don't know. Um, and at this point, we also don't see any reaction from Barack when he comes into the scene. Uh, we don't see what's going through his head. Uh, we just know God's promise was fulfilled in a way that no one would have seen coming. So, <laughs> tip your waitress, I'll be here all week. Uh, So verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And then in verse 5, we read Deborah leading out in a song of praise, which Barak joins, and that's the only reaction we get from Barak. He praises God, and he blesses the woman who got the glory instead of him. And chapter 5 closes, the, rest, the land had rest for 40 years. So what do we make of all of this? There is some humor in the story. Glad I was able to bring that out. But it's also gritty, gory, and probably a little bit gooey. And if you see the ideal biblical woman as a delicate flower made of sugar and spice and everything nice, it's a little hard to, to wrap your mind around. Why do we see the inclusion of women in this ancient battle narrative? Why include the grody details of of Sisera's death? Why not just say she killed him and and leave it at that? The text doesn't answer every question, but I see just three basic observations uh, that I want to point out here um, that I, I think we can apply. First observation, as you may be aware, the book of Judges is this story of steady moral decline in Israel's history. The people just get worse and worse as they wander away from God. And there are several places in Judges where women feature prominently, and if we put them together, I think a clear picture starts to develop. Here's just some highlights. Uh, Back in chapter 1, 
there was the story of Aksa, and I don't have time to discuss the details, but she's a woman who speaks up and makes an important request and has granted her request. And so along with Aksa, Deborah and Jael, we see early on in the book of Judges examples of women whose voices are heard and whose contributions are recognized and honored. But as the book goes on a little bit, we'll meet Jephthah, who makes a rash vow and ends up sacrificing his daughter. We'll meet Samson, who loses his temper, leaves his wife, and goes to prostitutes. At the end of the book, we'll meet a Levite who has a concubine. A concubine, by the way, is somewhere between a wife and a slave. And he turns her over to be raped and murdered to save his own skin. And then he further desecrates her dead body by cutting it apart and sending its pieces across Israel. And then finally, the book closes with two incidents, two, of mass kidnapping and forced marriage of young women. What I'm seeing here is judges painting a picture that as people turn further away from God, the treatment of women is getting worse and worse. And that shouldn't surprise us because failure to love God results in failure to love those made in his image. Failure to keep the first great commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, leads to failure to keep the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And yeah, that can go in any direction. Any of us can mistreat anyone else, male, female, it can go in any direction. But what we see in Judges is rampant mistreatment of women growing worse and worse. Put all the pieces together, and there is a story of shocking decline in the way that women are treated and valued. The author of Judges cares enough about the treatment of women to mention it, and that author is God. So we should care enough to mention it as well, not because it's politically correct or trendy, but because it's biblical. Whether we're talking about domestic violence or sexual harassment or abuse or simply situations where women just aren't heard or treated fairly or respected for their gifts and contributions, honored as bearers of God's image, we should care because God cares. Now, there's more that could be said. It doesn't sound super controversial until you start talking about specific cases, and I know it's been politicized in every direction, but uh, I'll just leave it there for you to ponder on your own. God cares about the treatment of women, and do we care as he does? Here's our second basic observation then. We see God working through women and judges because God works through women. Against the backdrop of ancient Near Eastern culture where men did the big important things and women mostly contributed by supporting their men, we see two women doing big important things in very different ways because God used women to do some big important things. Ambrose of Milan was a 4th century theologian, so in the 300s AD. Uh, he was known as the mentor of Augustine of Hippo, who you might be familiar with. Well, Ambrose saw in Deborah's story a message of encouragement for women, uh, specifically his writing to widows, uh, but he writes for them to be strong. And let me read some of his words, and remember this was written in the 4th century. He says, I think Deborah's judgeship has been narrated, her deeds described, so that women should not be restrained from deeds of valor by the weakness of their sex. Deborah governs the people. She leads armies. She chooses generals. She determines and orders triumphs. So then it is not nature which is answerable for the fault 
or which is liable to weakness. It is not sex, but valor which makes strong. And so, according to this history, a woman, that the minds of women might be stirred up, became a judge. A woman set all in order. A woman prophesied. A woman triumphed. And joining in the battle array, taught men to war under a woman's lead. You then who are women have no excuse because of your nature. Everyone has sufficient protection if courage is not wanting to the soul. As I understand him, uh, Ambrose is very concerned about widows being spiritually complacent, about using their singleness and their sex as an excuse, thinking they can't do anything meaningful without a, a husband to support and hold up. And notice that Ambrose isn't trying to erase any differences between men and women. Uh, this is the fourth century, but instead he's very much aware of the differences and aware as, as he can be of the unique challenges facing women in the various stages of life. So he encourages them to be strong in the Lord. God used Deborah in his eyes, a woman, and God used Jael, a woman, to bring about the deliverance of his people. God works through women. Now, I know there's a common notion that God only used women in Deborah's day to show up the men who should have stepped up, but I don't see any support for that idea in the text. The problem wasn't that men wouldn't step up. The problem is that they'd wandered away from God and were under his condemnation, and it's never until God raises up a deliverer uh, that anyone can step up, but also it's explicitly set in the days of Shamgar, who was a man who did step up. And I don't see any contradiction with New Testament instruction on male eldership or male headship in marriage because I don't think eldership is the only way to contribute to the life and mission of God's people in important ways. Uh, the elder's job isn't to do all the work of ministry, to, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and that includes equipping women. There's no separate list of spiritual gifts for women any more than there's a separate list of fruit of the Spirit or a separate great commission. And I, I think our church does well when it comes to allowing women to use their gifts. I'm not a woman, so if you are and you want to tell me different, I'd love to hear your perspective. Um, I remember a few years ago, the elders got together and wanted to put a group uh, of members together to help us discuss the health of the church. And we all went around the room and didn't intend to do this, but we all just happened to pick women who uh, we thought were, were gifted. And they, they were very helpful. So all the Spirit's gifts to all members of the body are essential to the life and health and mission of the church. And if we ignore how God uses and gifts women, we'll miss how God intends for them to share in pointing us to Christ. And that leads me to the final observation, that if we ignore God, how God used women in Judges in this text, we'll ignore how they point us to Christ. When Deborah prophesied to Barak, about the woman who will defeat Sisera. That prophecy comes at an interesting point in the story. It's a point where we'd expect a reluctant servant of God to be given a sign that confirms the truth of God's call and God's word. It's at that point where Moses was given the sign of a staff that turned into a snake or his hand went leprous and then healed again. And Gideon was given the sign of a, the fleece and the dew. Barak is given the sign of the woman. And at first that seems to mean Deborah, but we'll, we'll find out later that it's, it's the hammer and tent peg of jail, crushing the enemy's head. But Deborah wasn't the first to hint at what Jael did. 
In Genesis 3.15, all the way back in Genesis, God makes a strange promise in his curse on the serpent that the seed of the woman will crush the head of a serpent, the devil. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall crush, he shall bruise your head, excuse me, and you shall crush his heel. So now we see Jael, the woman, crushing the head of Sisera, an enemy of God's people and seed of the serpent. So Jael does more than confirm Deborah's prophecy of deliverance from Sisera's power. She confirms God's promise of deliverance from Satan's power. Her actions are in turn their own prophecy. They speak that God has not forgotten, that the snake crusher is coming through the woman, through her offspring. The woman in the story, as in many Old Testament stories, is a sign of the coming defeat of the ultimate enemy of God and his people. This isn't the only time the woman is a sign. I'm reminded of a, a passage in Isaiah 7, verse 14, we often read at Christmas time, where King Ahaz has given the sign that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, the woman and her offspring, the sign of God's faithfulness and the coming seed that will crush the serpent's head. No wonder Deborah's song honors Jael as most blessed of women. In chapter 5, verse 24, she, she's a living confirmation of the faithfulness of God to that primordial promise of deliverance from darkness, most blessed of women. Does that phrase sound familiar? Take a look at Luke 1. I think I'm in verse 39 here. Luke 1, 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, which was John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. We find in Elizabeth's joy and in Mary's song an echo of Deborah's song. God chose to bring Jesus into the world through a woman. Jesus himself is also foreshadowed by Jael's actions. He's the one who crushes the serpent's head, not by a nail driven into the enemy, but by the nails driven through his own body into the wood of the cross. Jesus did what no judge could do. He took the penalty for our wickedness and our wandering away from God. He was sold into the hands of evil men in our place. He's the only one who could get to the root of the problem, which is sin, and break the cycle because he's the only one who could deal with sin once and for all, and he did deal with it once and for all. The power of death and sin and the devil are crushed at the very head. Look to the seed of the woman and find God's promise fulfilled. Deliverance has come. The snake crusher has come. There is a redeemer. And thinking about how this truth applies to our own hearts, 
I think this is ultimately why the glory was taken from Barak and given to the woman. I don't know what his motives were or whether they were right or wrong, but I do know this. At the end of the story, we see a man who was called by God, who fought valiantly, who walked by faith, but in the end finds that the enemy was already defeated by someone else. He finds the victory has already been won by someone else and the glory belongs to someone else. And he rejoices. He praises God who defeated the enemy and won the victory through another. And that's a little bit like you and I, isn't it? For one thing, I'm not sure what my motives are half the time. But the victory is not in us. We are sinners. We have doubted God's word and God's goodness. We often still doubt, though we also believe We are also saints. By faith, we lay down the quest for glory. By faith, we strive to walk according to God's word. And the road we walk leads to the glory of another. By faith, that becomes our hope. We can walk by faith and fight our sin, strive with all the power God supplies to take every last thought captive and and put the flesh to death, work to build the kingdom all the strength God gives, and in the end, we'll find that the real victory has already been won. Not the woman, but her promised offspring has won the victory, and we will with joy and thanksgiving sing the praises of the one who crushed the enemy's head. We will give him the glory, and we will have rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that above all things glorifies you. And we thank you also for the gift of women and the distinct ways in which they are called to express the image of God and glorify you. We thank you for the ultimate gift which you delivered through the woman, the promised seed of woman the man Jesus Christ. We thank you that the full and final victory has already been won in him, not by our work and not for our glory, but for the glory of his name. Thank you that the head of the serpent is crushed, the power of sin is canceled and broken. We pray as we seek to live in light of this truth that as men and women in your church, we would strengthen one another through the gifts we've been given, through the word and through the spirit. Help us to grow together into Christ that he might be formed in every one of us and we might be conformed, every one of us, into his image. Father, we confess that we often doubt your word and your promises and we often seek our own glory desire our own acclaim and fame. Father, give us faith that trusts in Christ's work alone, believing your promises and willingly laying aside our own glory to follow after you, to run the race set before us, not for our own glory, but for the glory of Christ not for the praise of men, but for the delight of our Heavenly Father. Purify us and prepare us, the bride of Christ, for the day we meet 
our bridegroom, the day we see him face to face and dine with him and glorify our God and Savior, rejoicing and blessing the one to whom belong the glory forever and ever. To him be the glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.